Well, hello again, and welcome back to the Vineyard Church Podcast. Today, as Myron says, is a message that applies to all of us. Why? Well, because we all have burdens, and we all have something heavy that we are carrying around day in and day out. But James tells us that we are not alone, and we are not supposed to carry these burdens by ourselves. There is a better way to live life. Let's take a listen. Well, how we doing? Uh, Good morning. Good to see you. Um, anybody ever make two trips when they carry groceries into their house? If you do, you're soft. I'm just saying. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but no matter how many groceries are in the back of our car, I'm lining each arm. I mean, there's like plastic bags on my shoulders. Like, I got them lined up. I got two gallons of milk in one hand. I got every. I, I mean, I'm literally like a pack mule. I can't feel my hands because the circulation's cut off because of all the, the, the plastic bags. And I'm, I'm walking through the garage, up the steps, knocking crap over because like, I, there's, it's excessive, but we do it. Everyone's a one-tripper. I don't, know, I don't know that many two-trippers. Like, it's a one-trip. I can do this. I got something to prove. And then like my kids or my wife will ask me, can I help? I'm like, no, get out of the way. I'm doing this. And then I just like drop it on the counter, maybe break something because I got something to prove. Like, I can do this in one trip. And uh, it's funny, but the same idea of like carrying stuff unnecessarily played out when we went to the Columbus Zoo this past summer. And, you know, we have three kids. They were under one, three, and five uh, when we took all three of them this past summer to go to the Columbus Zoo. And if, you have, if you've had kids or multiple kids in that age, you know when you go anywhere, you take your whole house with you, like, because you never know what they're going to need. And so we got a wagon, and we had a stroller, we had a cooler with food and snacks, you know, extra outfits, you name it, the whole kitchen sink with us. And we get there, and we start to push the stroller and, take, you know, pull the wagon. The wagon's got the cooler in it, which is full of drinks and, and our lunch. And we have a, 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 a friend of ours, good friends of ours, a couple that was coming with us. And so we're walking, and I'm pulling the wagon. It's heavy. It's got a cooler, and it's got a baby in it, a kid in it. It's heavy. And my oldest daughter, Avalyn, five at the time, looks at me and says, Daddy, I want to pull the wagon. I was like, I don't know, baby. Like, it's, it's pretty heavy. Like, I got it. You know, you just enjoy the zoo. She's like, no, I want to pull the wagon. I'm like, okay, here you go. Pull the wagon. So she's 25 pounds. Like, the wagon weighs more than her. And she is leaning as hard as she can, and she's trying to pull this wagon, and she's moving it. And so I start walking out ahead of her, and eventually I hear, Daddy, <laughs> I don't want the wagon anymore. I'm like, no, you said you wanted the wagon. You're pulling the wagon. Like, I'm going to teach you a lesson right here. Follow through with what you said you wanted to do. She's struggling, and she's like, Daddy, I'm done pulling the wagon. I was like, okay, just bring it to me. Bring the wagon to me. I'm, I'm a few feet ahead of you here. And she finally lugs it to me. I take the wagon from her. And the reason I say the grocery one-trip story and pulling a wagon is I think our passage today is going to lend itself to you are carrying something pulling something, lugging along something that you were never meant to carry on your own. And we have some like agenda and pride and ego that says, I got this, strapped up each arm, gallons of milk in each side, carrying something. And somebody's asking you, hey, are you okay? Can I help? How are you doing? And you go, I'm fine. And you keep carrying it like you have something to prove. And so James, he's the half-brother of Jesus, He's going to encourage you today, which he encouraged the followers of Jesus back then. I'm going to say he's going to beg you and show you you don't have to carry anything alone. The good stuff or the bad stuff. The highs and the lows. You are never meant to walk through life alone. And so we're coming to the end of his book. Uh, We're two weeks away. This week and next week we'll finish the book of James. Here's the final words that he's saying to the followers of Jesus that he is writing to in Jerusalem. Chapter 5 of James, verses 13 through 18, is is, uh, what we'll read today. We'll leave the last two verses of the chapter for next week. So James chapter 5, it says this, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If you have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person 
is powerful and effective. The first line, anybody have trouble? And I'm going to ask you, don't raise your hand. Sometimes it's weird in church when people ask you to raise your hand. I'm not going to do that. Sometimes I do, but not today. But answer the question honestly. Do you have trouble in your life? Do you have trouble at work, in a relationship? Is there a conflict? Is there a disagreement? Trouble in your marriage? Frustration? Lack of communication? Is there financial struggles where you're like, man, I just don't have enough at the end of it because groceries are so expensive. Life is getting more expensive. I just can't make this work anymore. Do you have trouble there? Are you a parent? Do you have trouble with your preteens or your teenagers and raising them in this difficult day and age? Do you have trouble in your life? If so, this is for you. And then it says, is anyone happy? Is anybody in the season of life where like, hey, kuna matata, baby, like life is good, it's all well with me, I'm living it up, and everything is just going so perfectly, if that's you, which it can be, maybe, living your, your best life, he's talking to you as well today. Then he goes, is anybody sick? Anybody got a health issue, a diagnosis that just came in? Or just a, a burden of, of constant not feeling well or some struggle with your physical health that you have on the daily basis. If that's you, he's talking to you. And if those first three didn't apply to you, he asked this question. Anyone struggle with sin? Because the first three didn't apply, he knows this one does. Because we all struggle with sin. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You have sin that you struggle with and are tempted with and have to wrestle with and deal with on the daily basis. And if that's you, this applies to you as well. No matter where you are, what you've experienced, what you're struggling with, what trouble, happy, joy, sadness, fear, sin, sickness, this applies to you. He gives the answer. No matter what your circumstances, he gives the answer. He says, pray. Or worship God. He says, sing praises. Worship God. Pray to God in all circumstances. And you might think, Myron, that's the most Christian cliche answer ever, isn't it? Like, hey, have you, you might be asking, you're going through, have you prayed about it? Well, yeah, duh, of course. Like, I'm a Christian. Of course I pray about everything. Do you? Like, or somebody comes to you and says, hey, I got this going on. Will you pray for me? And we go, oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. But yet we never actually pray for them. Because it's the most Christian cliche thing to ever do is just say pray. And I'm guilty of this. As people ask me in my, in my line of you know, work here as a pastor, people ask me to pray for them all the time. Or when I'm having a conversation, my default response is I'll pray for you. And most of the time I'll say that, but I'll never actually do it. I'll confess that. And now I've started to implement it in my life. If I say I'm going to pray for you, I'm going to pray for you right now in the moment. Because if I don't, I'll probably forget and get busy. So it's not just a Christian cliche, what is prayer? I want to unpack, James is giving us the response in all circumstances, pray. And he's going to give some instructions of how to pray, but what is prayer? If I asked you that question, you would probably come up with an answer of what? Talking to God, right? That's the fundamental, basic kid's definition, talk to God, have a conversation with God. But if I asked you how did prayer work, how does it actually work? We'd all go, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't quite understand prayer. Like We're called to do it, and we see it in the Bible, and it's the most default answer. But actually, what is it, and how does it work? Because if I'm honest with you, I don't fully understand prayer. It's one of the most complicated and confusing things that I see as a follower of Jesus. James gives us this answer, in all things, pray. But today, I want to try to help us understand what prayer is. But before we jump into what prayer is, I want to unpack two words in this passage that trip me up when it comes to prayer, and maybe have tripped you up when it comes to prayer. There's two words. The first word is this, elders. If anyone's sick, grab the elders, assemble the elders, and have them pray for you. So, well, is prayer only for the elders? And who are these elders that James speaks of? Another term for elders just means overseer. Overseer, somebody who has oversight, responsibility, some type of leadership uh, over people's spirituality, their walk, their faith, can be formal, can be informal. There's two ways in which the Bible uses this word elder. The first one is uh, somebody who has wisdom. Simply, it was used as a term of respect to somebody who was basically an old Christian, <laughs> 
Like they're just mature in their faith. They got gray hair. They've been following Jesus for a long time. They would earn the title from the younger people or just the church body in general. They're one of the older people. They're the elder of the church. They're wise and, and, and they got a lot of wisdom and insight into being a Christian. And really the early church knew if you wanted wisdom about what it means to follow Jesus, go to the older people. People who have lived it, who've done it, who have prayed, who have, who have walked with God longer than you. They sought out the wisdom of the older people and elder. And he's simply reaffirming that of, hey, if you need help, you need guidance, you need wisdom, you need to understand the complexity of prayer, go to a gray head, go to a wise person, an elder. The other term for elder is usually to identify somebody who has a position of leadership in the church, a more formal position, not just a respect out of their age and wisdom, but they have a position that they've been assigned as an elder or an overseer. And he's saying, hey, go to those people. If you have problems, trouble, you're happy, whatever, you can go to those people. Now, an elder doesn't have to be a paid position. Like, it doesn't have to be a pastor or somebody on staff at a church. An overseer is somebody who's been given responsibility to disciple other people inside the context of the body of Christ. You see, we have tons of overseers here in this church, and I love the overseers of this church. Rachel was up here talking about her kidsmen team. There are overseers of kidsmen who constantly, weekly, sacrifice Sunday morning to disciple children on their level, overseeing their faith. We have youth ministry workers who meet on Sunday nights who oversee the development and discipleship of teenagers. We have the Way Overseers, which is the Way is a group of young adults, 18 to 25 year olds. There's a group of leaders, overseers, actively, intentionally discipling that generation. There are life group overseers who open up their home or a room at the church and say, hey, I'm going to just create a space for conversation and I'm going to be overseeing this group and meeting and growing in our faith. We have safety team overseers who whole entire role and responsibilities make sure this place and the kids' center is as safe as it can be so we can come unhindered and uninterrupted, experience the presence of God. We have prayer team overseers who pray for people every single week in the back of this room who would love nothing more than to usher in God's presence through prayer and provision, and they do it every single week. And my favorite group of overseers are the people who come early and stay late to set up and tear down. Because I don't know if you realize the magnitude that it takes to meet here in the Capitol Theater and even in the ballroom. We've done it before and we're going to do it again. To create a space, to oversee a, a, a space, to take pride in a space of where I know that kids and adults are going to get to come and experience the presence of God. They oversee that. They have a role and responsibility. Now, not all volunteers are overseers. Don't hear me say that. But every volunteer team and opportunity will have an overseer leading that area of the church. And James is saying, if you got trouble, if you're happy, if you got sickness or you got sin, go to one of your elders, somebody who has respect, wisdom, gray hair, or somebody who's in your ministry team, in your life group. And if you're not on a team or in a life group, you need to go seek that out so you can have an overseer who you can bring all of these things to in your life. And he says, when you get the elders together or an overseers together, he talks about anointing them with oil. And you might be thinking, what is that? Like, is that even a thing that we still do today? Or is that simply back then in biblical times? No, we do that today. We do that here. Not every Sunday, but a lot of Sundays. I know it happens. I had the privilege, actually, of, of anointing my, one of my really good friends with oil right before he went down and had a surgery to remove a cancerous tumor from his liver. And I got to put a cross on his head with oil. We prayed over him. And you don't have to put a cross, but that's the most standard way on their forehead. And you pray and you anoint oil. We gather the prayer team, pastors, elders, leaders, overseers, volunteers, and we all prayed for him. It happens a lot of weeks here. We still do it. And so why do we do it? You see, oil is this, is this uh, illustration. It's a symbol, kind of like baptism, but it's different because it's, it's inviting the presence of God to cover that person. So the little bit of covering of oil is to signify God's presence, His Spirit covering. We're inviting the power and the presence of God to fully encompass this situation that this person is praying for. And so James is saying, if you have something, go to the elders, go to the overseers, and if, if it's appropriate, get the oil out, anoint them, invite God's presence. 
Because even before the New Testament, before the Spirit of God got poured out at Pentecost, the Spirit of God's mentioned in the Old Testament. The word is ruach. And it means uh, the wind or the breath of God. And so prophets and kings in the Old Testament would get anointed with oil, inviting the covering and protection and the power of the Holy Spirit to guide and cover that individual. And that's what it means. That's the symbol. And we still do it today. Then verse 16 happens. It says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Here's the second word that we find. The first word is elder. Elder, the second word that we find that trips me up is righteous person. Like, what, what does it mean to be righteous? It seems like there's a loophole here. James is saying, hey, if you want, like, your prayers to work, make sure the righteous person prays for you. And if I'm honest, I look around and go, I don't, who are, like, is there anybody who's righteous? Like, and it might make sense to you, like, if this is the formula for effective and powerful prayers that actually get answered is the righteous person, then that answers your question of, well, no wonder my prayers don't get answered, because I'm not righteous. I'm disqualified from having powerful and effective prayers because I am not righteous. It's simply a churchy, wor- a churchy word that we throw around, but what does righteous even mean and look like? It means this, right living. Righteous just means right living. And not a right living in your own context, and your own idea of what you want, but in the context of what God says, of what His will is, of His nature and His character. And so righteous is the pursuit of doing the right thing. Now, you cannot be perfect. It's not perfectionism. It is an effort to do the best by God every single day. And when you screw up, you confess it, you confess your sin, you pray for one another, you strengthen one another, and you're on this pursuit of right living, even though it's never attainable, but righteousness means that you are in right standing with God. And I'll get to it in a minute, you can't be right with God on your own. And so we're all in the same boat of never being righteous on our own. But there's another way that we can be righteous, I'll get to it in a minute, but James points them to maybe the most righteous person that these people would have known, would have known about. He talks about Elijah. Um, they would have known this story of Elijah. Again, these are Christians in the first century who would have known this, you know, the story of Elijah very well. It says this in verse 17. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He's saying, listen, you and Elijah, you're the same. You're both humans. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. Hey guys, listen, let me give you an example of maybe the most righteous person you know of. He's just like you. He's a human just like you. And he prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years, and he prayed again, and then the heavens opened up. You can do that. He's like, well, what do you mean? I've never done that before. He's like, but you have the same capacity to pray that type of prayer in that way to have that kind of connection with God. And to understand Elijah, I'm going to go back to the story of Elijah and give you the quickest synopsis that I can so you understand who Elijah is, who they would have understood Elijah to be, and how you are more like him than you realize. It's from 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19. Read it on your own, study it on your own. It's fascinating. Let me give you the quick overview. King Ahab was the king of Israel. Think he'd be a good dude, but the Bible says he was not a good dude. He was the most wicked king in all of Israel. His wickedness was more than all the wickedness combined of the kings who'd ever come before him. He invited all kinds of pagan gods in. They worshipped Baal in this time, which Baal was the universal god of fertility. They would sacrifice babies to him. He was also deemed Lord of the Earth or the Lord of the rain and dew. And he was invited in to be the God of the nation of Israel, the false God, a pagan God. And we're all worshiping him under King Ahab. Wicked things happened. And then God says, Elijah, go to King Ahab and say, Ahab, it's going to not rain for three and a half years. And and you're going to pray that it doesn't rain for three and a half. God's commanding it not to rain for three and a half years. And you're going to go tell King Ahab. Here's the problem with telling King Ahab that that's going to happen. They're an agrarian society. Like, they have crops and livestock, and water is paramount if that's the ecosystem or the, uh, the economy and the livelihood of the, of the culture. Like, they would die. It'd be famine. It'd be, it'd be horrendous. He said, hey, go, go, go tick off the most powerful man, evil king ever by telling him it's not going to rain and his society is going to plunder. And he does. He goes, he does that. It doesn't rain, and he walks out thinking that it's all good. I stuck it to the man. 
And then God says, Elijah, you better go run, bro. (laughs) Go hide in this place. It's not going to go well for you. So he goes and hides, and he's in a cave. And he gets Uber Eats by ravens. I can't make it up. Go read it. Like, literally, food shows up by ravens and feeds him and keeps him alive. And then sometime later happens... And he comes back into town. He interacts with this widow who has a young boy. The famine is great in the land at this time. This widow has enough flour and oil to make one pancake, one loaf of bread, one pancake. And any good mother would eat one bite and give the rest of the pancake to her boy so they would survive. And they're probably thinking, this is our last meal. We're going to die. And Elijah says, give me the pancake. (laughs) If you're a mom, you're like, no way. But the widow mother Trust Elijah, the word of God from Elijah, and says, here you go, here's the pancake. And the flour and the oil never run out every time that widow goes back to get more. And that family is saved, and you see the miracle of God in that moment. But some time passed later, Elijah's staying there with this widow and this boy. Some more time passes, and the boy dies. He gets sick, and he dies. The widow goes, God, why? This man of God, what have you brought to my household? Elijah picks the boy up, takes him up to the upper room that he was staying in probably puts his body on the boy three times and prays that God would bring him back to life. And he did. The boy comes back to life because of Elijah's faith and his prayer. And so some more time passes. A long time passes, the scriptures say. Now it's time to go back to Ahab. It's about to rain. The three and a half years is about to be up. He's got to go back in to where there's great famine. The guy who caused the famine is going to go back to the king. He's like, this is a death death sentence, but God, sure, I'll go. And he goes back (laughs) to tell King Ahab, you know, um, this is what he was supposed to tell King Ahab. 450 prophets of Baal existed in this time worshiping Baal, and they were the 450 prophets of Baal leading the nation of Israel in that pagan worship. And, 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 uh, and Elijah goes to King Ahab and says, hey, get your prophets of Baal, all 450, and we're going to have a showdown. Like, we're, we're going to sell this place out. Like, we're going to have a showdown between your God and my God. You can pick the bulls, all right? You pick both of the bulls. And if you didn't know, you would pick the best bull because that's what you would sacrifice to your God was the best bull. Elijah says, you pick both. You can take the best one. You can give me the crappy bull. I don't care. Pick the bulls. We'll build an altar on this mount. And we're going to worship God and we're going to call down fire from heaven. And whichever one, whatever altar lights on fire, let that be the one true God. And, the, and King Ahab and the prophets of Baal go, yeah, for sure. Got this in the bag. No doubt. Our God's going to stomp your God. Sells out crowd. Everybody's there. The prophets of Baal start early in the morning, start worshiping and prophesying and chanting and crying out to God. All morning passes, the altar and the bull never catch on fire. I can't make this up. Elijah starts talking smack. He goes, louder. <laughs> He's probably sleeping. Read the scripture. It's in there. He's like, oh, maybe he's busy. Maybe he like is traveling and he's just not available right now. Maybe he's driving and the auto text came back. Sorry, I'm driving right now. You know, maybe he's on a Zoom meeting and he's too busy for you right now. He's mocking them. It's crazy. So then the, the worshipers of Baal, they start cutting themselves and bleeding out to invoke the God of uh, Baal to bring down fire. And he didn't. Finally, Elijah's like, okay, you guys are done. My turn. Elijah tells some servants, hey, you know what? Go get four pitchers of water, dump it on the wood, dump it on the altar. You're trying to call down fire from heaven, right? And you're going to soak in water? Oh, yeah, just, just do it. They do it. Elijah says, that's not enough. Do another round, four more uh, buckets. They did the same. Elijah, nope, do it a third time. Now there's literally pools of water on this bull and on this wooden altar. And Elijah prays, God, bring down fire. Show off who you are. And the thing ignites. As if gasoline was poured on it and not water. It's incredible. And everybody in attendance goes, man, that's the one true God. Crazy. Go read it. That's who Elijah is. And you might be thinking, heck no, I'm not like Elijah, Myron. I never prayed for rain to stop or rain to come, for a boy to be resurrected and for fire to come down from heaven. I'm not even close to the righteousness of Elijah. I'm nothing like Elijah. But then Elijah is like, okay, it's about to rain. So he goes up on Mount Carmel, which is where the whole show happened. 
And he puts his head between his knees and he says, God, make it rain. And he says to his servant, hey, go see if it's going to rain. Go over and look at the sea. And the servant comes back and says, nope. Elijah does this seven times, sends his servant, comes back, and finally the wind picks up, the darkness forms in the clouds, and it's about to rain for the first time in three and a half years. And you're like, man, that does not feel like me. Until you get to chapter 19. Keep reading the story. Chapter 19, you see this. Jezebel who was kind of the prophetess of Baal that married King Ahab, which brought all of the wickedness into the kingdom of Israel. Jezebel hears that 450 of her prophets have now been killed to purge the nation of Israel from these false prophets and false gods. She don't like that. She puts a hit on Elijah's head. Elijah finds himself running again. He's in hiding again because Jezebel wants to kill him. And he goes out into the wilderness and he leaves his servant behind. He takes no food with them and he goes and sits under a tree. And here's what he prays to God. He says, God, take my life. God, would you end all of this for me? I can't do it anymore. Wait, hold on a second. You stopped the rain. You brought the rain. You brought fire down from heaven. You raised the boy from the dead. And you're, you're saying, God, take, take, take your life? This guy's got powerful prayers. Now he's praying for suicide to happen. He didn't want to take his own life, but he had suicidal thoughts. He didn't want to be alive anymore. It's too hard. And then you might realize you're more like Elijah than you realize. Because I know it's been hard for you to stand for truth like Elijah. He was the only one standing for truth in the nation of Israel who was worshiping all kind of pagan, false ideas, ideologies, and gods. But he didn't conform to the pattern of this world. He was set apart and different. He wasn't perfect. He was set apart. And Elijah's like, God, I'm tired of being a messenger of truth. I'm tired of doing the right thing. And you might, be doing, you might feel the same way. God, I'm tired of being the nice guy all the time. I'm tired of forgiving like you call me to. I'm tired of living with a pure, purity in my sexuality even though I don't want to and the rest of the world says I shouldn't. God, I'm exhausted. Can we just be done? What's the fruit of this? I don't even see the benefit in this anymore. God, can you take my life? I don't want to do this anymore. Do you have trouble in your life? Do you have sickness in your life? Do you have sin in your life where you're burdened saying, God, I'm done. Elijah was there. You're more like him than you, re you realize. What you have to understand about Elijah is even though he was an incredible man of faith, and a man of righteousness and did miracles in the name of God, he did none of that on his own strength or his own power. It wasn't his idea. He was simply being obedient to whatever God called him to do. And the same is true for you as a normal human being. To live a righteous life is just doing whatever God says, whatever he's commanded, and whatever he's asked you to do. And I know it's incredibly hard sometimes because doing the right thing by God often produces hardship in our life. It doesn't make life better. <laughs> it makes life more difficult a lot of times. And you might want to quit. You're carrying something. You're burdened by something. You have trouble and sickness in your life, and you may want to quit, but you are like Elijah. Don't quit. Here's what Elijah did. Under that tree, he prayed a prayer of desperation. God, take my life. But he prayed. And God was able to communicate with him through prayer. James is instructing us, in prayer, like Elijah, all the time, communicate with God so that you can live the life of purpose that he has for you. Because you are righteous, and here's how you're righteous. Not because of anything that you can do, but because of what, what has been done for you by Jesus Christ on the cross. The book of Romans chapter 5 says this, Therefore, since we have been made justified, have been justified by faith, justified means righteous, you are now in right relationship, right standing, able to live a right life because of Christ, because of faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You will never be righteous by your own actions and standards. But only by faith, through grace, alone, 
you can rejoice in the peace and the hope of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when God looks at you, if you've made the decision by faith to trust in Jesus as the substitution for your sin on that cross, he died. No other form of love is greater than for someone to lay down their life for you. And God left the comfort of heaven through his own son, Jesus, to lay down his life for you. And if you profess that and believe that and truly believe that, you are made right in God's eyes. When he looks at you, he doesn't see you anymore. He doesn't see me, Myron, the old Myron anymore. And thank God he doesn't see the old Myron anymore. He sees his son silhouetting me. And I am made right in the Father's eyes only through faith alone, by grace alone, in Jesus Christ alone for the substitution I can be made right. And if you get that, you understand that your prayers are powerful and effective. You got the criteria of a righteous person to have powerful and effective prayers. But if you don't get this, you'll constantly pray out of desperation and insecurity and guilt and shame, but not in a confidence, not because of who you are, but because of who you are praying to. The God who holds your life in his hands, who went to the cross on your behalf to save you and redeem you, give you a new life. That's the God that we have on our side that can bring down fire from heaven. But this is where the Bible messes me up. Okay, I'm righteous. Okay, maybe I'm not an elder. It doesn't really matter. But maybe I am an overseer in some way in the church. I'm old or I got responsibility. I got the criteria. But here's the problem that I run into and it messes me up all the time. James 5.15 And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. Seems like a promise. An absolute guarantee. If you pray a prayer of faith, it'll make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. Not maybe. He will. It's absolute. Seems like a promise. But here's the problem that messes me up, and maybe you, is how many times have you prayed for the cancer to go away? How many times have you prayed that the diagnosis would be different this time? How many times have you prayed for the pain that you're feeling or the discomfort, the ailment that you walk every day with to go away, and yet it does not go away? How many times have you prayed for your marriage to be better and it's still on the rocks? How many times have you prayed for your Kids that stop making stupid decisions and they're still making stupid decisions. How many times have you prayed for more money and you're still struggling? How many times have you prayed for financial stability but yet it's so unstable? You insert the blank. How many times have you prayed and had faith but yet it didn't happen? And you know where we instantly go when, that, when our prayers aren't answered? We instantly go back to the two words of I don't have enough faith Man, and I don't have enough righteousness. But the problem with that is it's not about the faith. Jesus says faith is big as a mustard seed will move a mountain. You don't need more faith. You need more obedience. You need more right living. You need to do what I am asking you to do more than you need to believe uh, in the power of your prayers. You have the righteousness granted to you if you follow Jesus. Actually follow Jesus. And you just need some faith to be able to pray to God. Seems like James has given us the playbook, but man, I didn't make the cut for the varsity team. (laughs) Or hey, God gave us the the formula, but man, I'm really bad at math. (laughs) It doesn't work for me like it works for those other people. But here's the problem with this idea of prayer. is It isolates one verse, which is my first point and three points of what prayer is, real quick. Prayer is this, number one, defined by the whole book, not just a few verses. Prayer is defined by the whole Bible, Not just a few verses. We cannot isolate and have instantaneous theology over one verse. It's not absolute truth in that way. Look at the totality of Scripture. Because I look at a guy named David who had sex with Bathsheba, got her pregnant, had her husband killed, and then when the baby was born, he prayed for seven days that the baby would be saved and not die because it was sick. But after seven days, David, man after God's own heart, one of the greatest kings of Israel, did not get his prayer answered. The baby died. Wait, hold on. Didn't he have faith? Wasn't he a righteous person? (laughs) Shouldn't his prayers got answered? And it didn't. Now look at the Apostle Paul. He wrote the majority of the New Testament. 
And he talks about there's this thorn in his side or in his flesh. And he pleaded with God three times to take it. And God didn't take it. Hold on. The greatest missionary of the early church, he was righteous. He had great faith, didn't he? And he couldn't heal himself with prayer. Then I look at Paul's protege, Timothy. He shows up to Timothy and Paul can't heal Timothy either. He, he basically gives Timothy some medicinal advice. In 1 Timothy 5.23, says, No longer drink only water, but use little wine, little wine, for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, don't make this a life verse and justify your alcohol consumption. That's not what this is about. It will not go well for you. But he's saying, hey, don't drink wine or don't drink water maybe all the time. Drink some medicine. It'd be like me telling you, take some Pepto for an upset stomach. They had wine back then that could and, you know, help some gut health out. Paul couldn't pray for Timothy and heal Timothy? Two incredibly righteous and faithful people couldn't be healed. Didn't they have the formula? Didn't they know this cheat sheet? <laughs> you got to read the whole Bible to see that you don't always get what you want in prayer. Even though you're righteous, made right in God's eyes, being obedient, being faithful, having great faith, Sometimes the outcome is not the outcome that you want in your prayer. And the greatest example of this is Jesus. In Matthew 26, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's about to be handed over and crucified. He tells his best friends, his disciples, a few of his disciples says, hey, I need you to pray for me. Not like the, you'll say it cliche, I need you to actually pray for me. And he goes into the garden a little farther and he prays and he says, God, I don't want to go to the cross. God, I don't want to go to the cross. God, I don't want to die on the cross. He said it in the way of, God, let this cup pass from me. He's saying, God, is there another way that we can do this? You're God after all. My favorite part about Jesus' prayer, who was, he's God. He's got faith. He's the most righteous human being ever. His prayer didn't get answered. And when you pray, I want you to pray like Jesus. Plead for what you want and what you desire. God's okay with that. He welcomes that. The Bible talks about that. But at the end of the day, and I know this is confusing, Jesus says, not my will, but your will. God, whatever the outcome is, whatever the story is, it isn't what my ending, I trust you. I surrender to your will over my wants, God. But didn't the Bible say, ask whatever you want in my name and it will be given to you? If you got faith, you anoint with oil. If you're sick and you gather the elders, won't you be healed? Not always. It's hard. But pray like Jesus prayed. Prayer is in, in, in view of the whole book, not a single verse. And here's what I think James is maybe alluding to when he says this, if you're sick. He's talking about a spiritual sickness. When Jesus, he was talking in, in Mark 2, uh, 17, he says, Is it not the healthy who need a doctor? It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. He correlates sickness to sin. We all have a spiritual sickness in us. And anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be healed in the spiritual sickness sense every time. Jesus bats a thousand on that prayer, I promise you. And I think that's what James is referring to here. He's not discrediting the anointing of oil for the physical healing. He's not. But I think he's alluding to the spiritual sickness that plagues all of us. And he gives us another piece of the puzzle, confess your sins. That's how you'll find spiritual healing as well. Point number two, in lieu of the whole book, point number one, point number two, prayer is more about connecting with God than getting from God. If you read scripture, you'll see that when you pray, I hope, and my prayer for you is when you pray, is you get to interact with God, not receive from God. You get to spend time with the God of the universe and get to know him better and build a relationship with God. That's what prayer is for. It's what it's designed for. I've heard it put this way. Communication is to a relationship as blood is to the body. Communication is to a relationship with blood. Is, you need blood in your body. <laughs> It's the essence of everything. Life flows from the blood inside of your body, and so does the health, the well-being, and the intimacy of your relationships with great communication. 
And if you're married, you, you know, amen, right? When the communication's good, the marriage is good. Your marriage always gets better when you communicate on a deeper, more intimate level. And so prayer is like the communication to your intimacy with the God of the universe. It allows you to communicate. It allows you to know his will and, and who he is and learn from him in a more profound way. You see, Jesus, right before he was crucified, he was in the upper room and uh, he was going to have the Last Supper, but he said something profound to his disciples. Eleven times he says this. He says, remain in me. Remain in me. Eleven times. And he illustrates himself as, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But you need, to, you, you need to be in the vein system of God. You need to be in the blood system of God. You need to be grafted into the vine as a branch because apart from me, you will die, you will fail, you will struggle, you will flounder, you will not thrive. Attached to me, remain in me, all things are possible for you. And that's his call to you. His prayer is an opportunity for you to remain in the vine. Stay connected to the God of the universe, the Savior of your soul, your King. That's what prayer is for. This is a three-point message. Actually, it's a three and a half, 2.5. Prayer is to align our heart with His will and not to align His will with our heart. We don't go to God in prayer to get Him to bend to our will and to our wants. We go to God in prayer, pleading whatever we want to plead. He welcomes it. But at the end of the day, like Jesus, God, take my heart and align it with your will. Help me believe and trust you on a deeper level and know that you're good and know that something good's coming on the other side of something bad. We talked about that last week. If you got trouble, if you got burdens, if you got sickness, if you got sin, you got distress, Jesus is saying, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden. I can give you rest. I will give you rest, he says. You were never meant to carry this alone. You were never meant to walk through life alone. Prayer allows us to join with God in our troubles and in our struggles. I don't know exactly how it works. I don't fully understand it. But here's what I do understand about prayer and how it changes my heart to align with his will. Is over time, I see God in the rearview mirror. I rarely see him through my windshield. But as you pray the prayers of faith, and you ask for your heart to be aligned with his will, you'll look back five years and see, yeah, God, you did it. Thank you. Praise you. Yes, thank you. You are all over my life. Your fingerprints are there in my story in the rearview mirror. Just stay steadfast, persevere, and be faithful, and keep going. Something good always comes on the other side. God is writing maybe a bigger story through your pain, through your struggle, through your sickness, through your despair that you might not see yet or even in this life. And I know prayer seems confusing, but it's to align our heart with his will, not to get his will to align with our heart. And lastly, number three, an act of obedience more than desperation. Prayer is an act of obedience, not an act of desperation. Man, we do this all the time. I'm so guilty. <laughs> when things get hard, that's when I go to prayer. When I've exhausted all of Myron's options or the options that the world has for me to solve my situation, then I'll probably get on my knees and resort to prayer. We pray prayers out of desperation often, don't we? But I've heard it said this way, an atheist doesn't exist in a foxhole at war. They're not in battle with their life on the line going, I don't really know if God is real. I don't really know if he made everything. They're crying out, God, save me. God, I need your help in this situation. Everybody, when they're truly desperate, will seek out divine intervention through prayer. That's not what prayer is. It's a call in Scripture of obedience to fellowship with God, to communicate with God, to be grafted into His vine and build intimacy with God. So would you pray prayers out of obedience? Daily pray and not just resort to it as a last resort option in desperation. I have a hard time fathoming that when I pray, that the God of the universe actually hears me. You ever been there? Like, does he really even care? Isn't he busy? He's on a Zoom call with somebody else who's more important than me. 
He's tied up. He's the God. I can't, why would he be concerned with me? But the scripture says he hears you. Every time you call upon the name of the Lord in prayer, he hears your prayer. And he's faithful. And he will answer them. But the answer may not look like the answer that you want. It may look like inside the bigger will and story that he may be writing. Be, obe- be, obe- be obedient and pray. The Apostle Paul talks about praying without ceasing. That's impossible, isn't it? I got three kids, a job, family, friends, life. <laughs> what do you mean? Just, I'm not a monk. I can't just go into the mountains and pray all day, every day. It's not what he's talking about. He's talking about in all things, have a mindset of recognizing Christ. In all things. And here's how I pray. I don't set aside 10 or 15 or 30 minutes every single day to have solitude and prayer. I'm, I'm not. It's not who I am. Call it lack of discipline. Call it father of three and a busybody. <laughs> call it whatever you want. But I can't do that. Here's how I pray without ceasing. In my car, every time I drive by myself, I never have the radio on. Never. I pray while I drive. And I talk to God. And I drive every single day. There's probably not a day I do not get on my automobile and drive. I get to pray with God when I drive. When I walk into a meeting, before I'm walking into the meeting, the three-minute walk or one-minute walk, 60-second walk, God, thank you for this meeting. I get to be a part of it. Be with me. Guide the meeting. Your will, not mine. Done. Pray that day without ceasing over that situation. You're about to have a phone call with somebody who's, it's going to be a tough conversation. I do this all the time. God, I'm about to have a hard conversation with somebody. God, would you be there? Holy Spirit, would you be present? Would you give me the words to say, thank you for who you are. Praise you for who you are. Let's go have this conversation. You can do that all day, every day, fellowshipping with the God of the universe through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's profound. And as you do it, your heart will be aligned with his will. And when you pray, ultimately pray, God, your will, not my will. You see, we are righteous if we've repented and put our faith in Jesus. Check. There are elders and overseers in your life, and if they're not in your life, find them in your life. If you're a young person who needs an elder or an overseer, someone wiser, they're here. And if you are that gray-headed older Christian, and you're not actively mentoring and discipling someone younger than you, Make yourself available for that. Seek that out. And begin to live out the intergenerationality of the body of Christ by doing that. Get on a serve team. Have an overseer over your life. Get into a life group and have an overseer in your life. And there's one thing I I forgot to mention that I want to end with here. Is it says confess your sins to one another. When's the last time you've confessed your sin to someone? Not just on your knees with God. God, I'm sorry that I was angry at my kid. Sorry that I watched that video that I shouldn't have watched. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. Not that. It says to one another. When's the last time you've done that? James indicate that there is some spiritual healing that happens every single time you get real with your brothers and sisters in Christ, the overseers and the elders, somebody in your life who's following Christ, when you open up and share what's really going on in your life and how you struggle. Do you have trouble? If you do, does someone know about it? Or are you just carrying every single bag thinking, I got this? And James is begging you, like, you were never meant to carry this alone. God wants to carry it with you, and he's putting a community of people around you who would love nothing more than to carry that burden with you as well. And what pride and ego that we have to think that we can do it on our own. And so, if you are sick and you are hurting and you are desperate and you don't have Christian people in your life that you can confess your sin to, that's your next step. And maybe you have to prioritize that over something else in your life and get in the community and find healing on a deep level. Because here's what I know about secret sin. Secret sin will kill everything good in your life. Secret sin will kill everything good in your life. Satan wants nothing more than you to keep your sin in the dark. Because in the dark, he has power over it. But in the light, he casts out all darkness. And that it might be for you. And so there's prayer people in the back of this room today who you can confess your sin to if you don't have anybody. 
or somebody that you drove with today, rode with today, a spouse, you might need to have a conversation on the way home and get real on the way home. You might have to confess to your kids at age-appropriate levels things that you've done, things that you're currently doing, and be real, and stop hiding in your sin because it's killing you. I know it is, and I know it is because it was killing me. And I was never truly healed in the spiritual sense. I believe I was a follower of Jesus, but I was never whole and complete with peace and joy until I got real with the real Myron and opened my mouth to somebody and said what was really going on. And if you want healing in all senses, confess your sin. Pray for one another. Seek out an elder, an overseer. Let your heart be aligned with his will. And it's confusing, I know. But power is a a profound experience that we get to do on the daily, convening and fellowshipping with the God of the universe. And it'd be a shame for us to not take advantage of that. So would you commit to being a prayer warrior in all things? Father, I thank you that you've done so much for us when you didn't have to. God, that you've given us this method of communication called prayer. Help us believe it. Help us buy in. Help us understand, and and to our best of our ability, it's hard, God. It doesn't always make sense. But that we would bring everything to you in prayer. We would pray without ceasing. We would align our hearts with you as best as we can. We would live right in your eyes as much as it depends on us, but trust you with the rest even when we're insufficient and fall short. Holy Spirit, would you come and comfort us in our troubles, in our sickness, in our, in our worry, in our doubt, in our fear. Help us let go of that and cast it at the feet of you. You call us to lay it all at the feet of Jesus. Take up his burden, his yoke. It's easy and it's light. Help us confess our sin and where we have secret sin in our life. It would be secret no more because your word says what is hidden will not stay hidden. It will always come out. So, Father, give us the courage and boldness to let it out on our own accord, to confess it and be real, to find deep spiritual healing and forgiveness that James is talking about, and bring a peace and a joy to our life that's only attainable when we get real with our sin. So, Father, I just pray right now that your spirit would be so present as we worship, convicting our hearts where we need convicted and calling us to follow you better from this moment forward. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us on the Vineyard Church podcast today. It's our greatest desire for people to find and follow God, and we hope this podcast is one way that helps you do just that. But don't stop here. We would love to see you face-to-face. God's people grow most in community, so don't forget you can join us live at the Capitol Theater in downtown Wheeling every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. If you'd like to connect with us in the meantime, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. You can catch up on previous messages and series, request prayer, and even download additional content. Thanks again for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.